And my message this morning is, for me, it's a little different message. We're actually going to be um, going back to Easter morning, in a sense. The title of my message is Motivated by the Resurrection. Motivated by the Resurrection. I want to be talking about the Resurrection. And I want to share with you, right up front, that a lot of the imagery that I'm going to be using is from a message that I read yesterday morning from a guy, by the, a pastor by the name of Richard Deem, not our Dick Deem, but a different one, who is a pastor and has a ministry called Higher Ground Ministries. I read this and I came over yesterday morning and I was like, Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to speak tomorrow. And I read through this and it just grabbed me. Now, the, the main focus and emphasis that I, in my nature anyway, wanted to drive home is at the very end. But the imagery was so amazing, and the way it was presented, I'm going to steal a lot of it, the imagery from him. There's a couple of different grammatical terms, and I'm not even sure which one he used. Personification or anthropomorphism. Aren't they nice words? Basically what they mean, and I can't hardly tell the difference between the two, is when you give human qualities to inanimate objects or to an animal. You're giving these human qualities. And, and what it does, it, it helps us. And if you go through the Bible, you see it all the time when it talks about the wind howling. How I many of you know wind doesn't howl? Really? But we use those kinds of grammatical things to really create a picture that we can grab a hold of. And I want to do that today as I, as I go through the first two-thirds of my message. Um, going to be talking about death. And I'm going to speak about death as if it is a person. Okay? So you're going to have to use your imaginations a little bit as we go through this process. And I'm going to start <clears throat> by reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But I'm going to give a, a few, a little background or maybe read a few verses before those that you'll even see on the screen. In, in chapter 15 of Corinthians, if you recall, I, I looked at that last week in the first part where Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, went back and he said, hey, don't complicate things. This is the simple gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again. And then he goes on and he's instructing them. And, and some of what was going on at the church at Corinth, there was some false teachers coming around and they were arguing and debating, is the resurrection real? Some are saying, oh, it doesn't really happen. There's a whole group of religious people that didn't believe the resurrection happened or was ever going to happen, that we were going to be resurrected. And Paul, Paul goes there to, to writes this letter in part to straighten that wrong teaching out also. And then in verse 50, he starts talking about this mystery of the resurrection. And I'm going to just read a couple, three, four verses before I get to the text that's going to be on the screen. Starting at verse 50, he says, I now say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this, this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and the mortal will put on the immortality 
then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So that is what he's teaching them about the resurrection. He's trying to to really convince them and give them an understanding that there is going to be a miraculous transformation or change take place. And what he's trying to really get into their heads is the fact that, first of all, Jesus was raised from the dead. He's giving them this convincing argument that what he said in the gospel message, he, was di- he died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, is true. And there is reason and hope and motivation in that truth of the gospel message. That Jesus was raised as the first fruits of all who will believe. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was evidence and proof that every child of God, every believer, will be raised with Him like He was raised. And we will get this new immortal, imperishable body as a, as a blessing from Him in one day. And this is what He's talking about and to, trying to drive home that, that teaching of the Gospel. It's like he's, here's the gospel, and they're almost saying, yeah, it's too easy to believe. Sounds too simple. Matter of fact, we're not sure about this resurrection thing. And he's just driving it home, driving it And that's what my goal is today, is to drive home in us the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that means something, means everything to us. Because if he wasn't raised from the dead, everything else, as Paul said, we're wasting our time, it's vain. But he was raised from the dead. So what does that mean for you and me? What can we do with that? And the Bible also talks about this thing called death. And for today, I'm going to say this, this person called death, if you would. It says death is that last thing that's going to be overcome. It's the last thing where the victory is going to come. So let's read starting in verse 55 through 58. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. So I'm going to use a lot of the imagery that this pastor Deem used in his message. And his message was, I think it was entitled when he gave his message, if you ever want to look it up, it was called The Day Death Died, or something similar to that. So we're going to start with the birth of death. Some of this I've talked about in recent weeks or months, but I want to repeat today. When did death come into existence? Well, I believe we can pinpoint the moment. I can't give you the date, but I can tell you the moment that death was born. The very moment that it made its presence on earth known. Death was conceived in the temptation of Adam and Eve. As Satan was tempting them, that was the conception of death. And when sin occurred, when they gave in to the temptation when they chose to violate God's one rule, don't eat of that tree because you'll surely die. The moment they ate of that tree, 
That was sin. And at that moment, death was born. If there would be a birth certificate for death, the time of birth would be the moment that the fruit was eaten. And that's when it was born. Talk about an ugly child. That's when it was born. Scripture records the birth in Romans 5, verse 12. It says, By one man, the man being Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Using that imagery, the parent of death then is sin. And the grandparent of death is Satan. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, whoever committeth sin is of the devil. These are powerful words. And until we get to the good news, it all is bad news. Death came into the world. And ever since that moment in time, death has been stalking every human being that's ever walked the earth. Looking to take them. There was a time, and we've talked about this often, there was a time before death was birthed that this place called earth was unbelievably perfect. There were no weeds and thistles. The farmers didn't have to worry about that. The trees and the abundance of fruit just happened. You didn't have to labor and toil for it. There was no sickness. There was no disease. Our bodies were not falling apart. Believe it or not, the physical body that God gave Adam and Eve was designed to last forever. Forever. Without pain. Without suffering. And certainly, no death. But once death was born, it didn't take long for things to start going the wrong direction. Immediately, we all know and understand, I hope, that spiritual death occurred in Adam and Eve the moment they sinned. They were then separated from God. That, that death thing includes eternal separation from God. And Adam and Eve were separated. But that moment also is when their body went from this state of absolute perfection to beginning to deteriorate and die at that moment. And boy, oh boy, were the early years of death it didn't take him long. Matter of fact, the very next generation, Cain and Abel, death. Cain kills his brother, Abel. And death has been on a rampage ever since, trying to kill everybody. He is the offspring of sin and Satan. And Satan's primary focus, primary goal, primary desire, his modus operandi is to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. Period. Death came and changed all the perfection that God had created. The Bible tells us that all creation groans for the return of Jesus. All of creation suffers because of death. Because of sin. Because it separated God from that intimacy that he had with his creation. And it almost instantly becomes this relentless predator. Think about death this way. It's like a predator. It is stalking everyone. It is not prejudiced. 
It doesn't care how you old or how young a person is. It doesn't care whether you're man, woman, or child. It doesn't care what race, what financial status. It doesn't care. It is a predator that its appetite is never, ever satisfied. Constantly looking. Who can it devour? And when you think about it in this way, talk about a successful predator. There has never been a more successful predator on this planet. Unless you're alive today on this earth, only two people have ever escaped death. Elijah and Enoch were taken up into heaven without ever experiencing death. Other than that, this predator, death, has taken every single human being ever born, except for those walking the earth today. And he's looking to devour all of us, every single one. And we see him manifesting throughout the Old Testament. You know, it's an interesting picture. If you think of this death and the imagery of this death, death escorting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into that fiery furnace knowing that I've got three of the Hebrews' best going into the furnace ready to take them until this other fourth figure in the fiery furnace shows up. Jesus, the Son of God. Can you imagine death's disappointment? thought I had these three. But one thing about death, it's patient. He knew it's just a matter of time. I'll get another shot at him. And a matter of fact, maybe I'll get a shot, another shot at that fourth one in the fiery furnace. Death eventually got to the place where he took on his most, his biggest, his most ambitious undertaking of all. That fourth man in the furnace as death is moving around the earth as this predator seeking who he can devour, the discovery is made that the fourth man in the fire has taken on human flesh. He's taken on this mortal man. I can get him now. I can take him. He came in the flesh the Son of God, God in the flesh. He's mine. And boy, he tried many, many times in Jesus' life. If you go through the Gospels and you read about Jesus' ministry, how many times they were trying to take him? How many times they wanted to kill him? Crowds, get ready to stone him, and he just walks right through them. Going to push him off a cliff, and he just gets away. Over and over, death was frustrated by the man Jesus. But death was patient and he just kept waiting and waiting for the opportune time. If you can imagine death escorting him to the garden of Gethsemane. Oh, as he was being tormented in the garden, we, we think of that, that Easter story where, where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and it says he, he is praying great drops of blood. There is such an intensity pressure as he's beginning to know what he's facing is death. And you can picture death standing there thinking, he's mine. I've got him. 
I've got him. They come to arrest him. Death is standing there, I'm sure, just grinning from ear to ear, thinking, here we go. It's happening. It's happening. I'm going to get him, finally. Death escorting them to the home of Caiaphas, to the home of Pilate, thinking, this is it. I've got him. I've got him. Whispering into to Pilate's ear, kill him. Turn him over to me, death. I'll take care of the problem. You will have no more problems with this man. Give him to me. And oh, and how must, he must have been excited and enjoyed hearing those words when, when Pilate says, you know what? Take him to the, and scourge him. Can you imagine death standing there thinking, all right, many have died even being scourged, being whipped, being beaten. Every time that whip, that cat of nine tails would hit his flesh and tearing away flesh and blood and just destroying his body. Every blow knowing death says he's closer. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. I am going to get him. Finally, every blow, every beating. And even when the scourging didn't get him, it's okay, I've got him. It's going to the cross. He will not survive the cross. He's mine. They drive the nails into his hands. And death is grinning from ear to ear. Drive him into his feet. Then they set the cross up and they drop it into the hole of the ground. And the jolt would just rip at Jesus' body. Oh, by this time, death is not alone. He's there with Satan himself. And every demonic spirit has gathered, thinking the victory is finally here. We are finally going to get him. Death is going to win. Jesus is on that cross. Death, Satan, the evil spirits beginning their celebration. Then all of a sudden Satan would remember, you know, when he was challenged in the garden, I saw no fear in his eyes. I thought I had him. Little doubt, little fear even creeps into Satan. He can't get away this time, can he? Standing before Caiaphas and Pilate and didn't even offer up a defense. When death is mentioned, fear enters man. Don't see that fear. Satan and death maybe becoming a little less sure of themselves. He's nailed to the cross, put up on a cross. There's no fear. There's no anguish in the sense that he could feel and see that finally Jesus is in the clutches of death. And he knows he's defeated. Once again, Satan and death become a little less certain of their their success again. Could it be I've met my match? Could it be? And then Jesus, hanging on the cross, gets enough strength and enough air in his lungs and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
and death and Satan and evil spirits are wondering, what's with this guy? And finally, Jesus says those words, it is finished, and his head drops and his body goes limp. Death has taken him. Oh, can you imagine the celebration that began in the demonic realm? Can you imagine the celebration of all the demons and evil spirits? Can you imagine the celebration going on in Satan's mind and and in death? He has taken him. Finally, he has taken him. The cheering, talk about partying in hell, that was really it. It started that day when Jesus died. Satan had been working so hard to get to this point. He'd worked in Caiaphas and the the religious leaders of the day. He'd been working in in Pilate. He worked in the the people that, that he convinced through his deception to stand in the courtyard and holler, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. May his blood be on our hands and the hands of our children. He'd worked hard to get to this point. And the celebration's going on, and then all of a sudden Satan remembers some words that Jesus had spoke. And he remembers those words were saying that, that you, you destroy this temple, and in three days, three days I'll be building it again. Satan probably call, had a conference call at the very least with death and says to him, You know what? You keep him past three days, and the kingdom is ours. We will have one. Day one comes, and the partying's going on, and the, the demonic realm, the evil spirits are rejoicing, Satan himself. Everything's good. Day two comes. Party hardly misses a beat. All of the celebrating, knowing that the Son of God was dead. The plan of God had been stopped. Day three comes. Satan's a little uneasy. Death, a little uneasy. And all of a sudden, it happens. All of a sudden, Jesus is raised from the dead. All of a sudden, he is alive. He's no longer dead. Death has been defeated by Jesus. Oh my goodness, would you... I mean, if I could see in the the demonic spirit realm, that would have been a picture to behold. Satan, death, and all the evil spirits, the partying in hell stopped. And trust me, there's never going to be partying in hell again. Ever. It's going to be torment, separation from God. At that moment, death died. At that moment, in the life of a Christian. In the life of a Christian. In your life and in my life, death died. The day, the moment that Jesus rose from the grave, death was defeated. Share a few scriptures in Revelations 1, 18. It says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And I'm alive forevermore. 
and I have the keys of hell and death. Jesus is saying, I am alive and I'm never dying again. Death is defeated. He is never, ever going to be the victor. I have the keys of hell and death. And in Colossians 2.15, he says, and having spoiled principalities and powers. In other words, having spoiled Satan and every demonic force on earth, having defeated them. And then it says, he made a public show of them. Now, if you would study historically, I love that line, and I've shared this with some of you before. One of the traditions back in Bible times, you know, there were kings in almost every town. Every city had a king. And when one king would conquer another king, one of the things they would do is they would take the opposing king. They wouldn't kill him. They would take him and put a rope around his neck and lead him through the town buck naked, making a public show of him. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus was implying or the Word of God is implying here, but I like that picture. Whatever it's implying, it's implying utter destruction and humiliation of Satan and death. In, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five that I've read, it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Death does not need to be the terror of our life. You know, an unbeliever is so afraid of death. We might put on this, this phony persona that I'm not afraid to die. I remember before my salvation, sharing like most all of us have done, if we're going to hell, we're going together, and we're going to party like we've never partied before. Yeah, that's how stupid I was. How deceived we were. Death really is a fearful thing for an unbeliever because they have no idea or understanding what's after death. Oh, there's a lot of philosophies out there and there are a lot of religions out there. You die, it's just over. It's like the curtain on life is finally pulled down and closed and that's the end. They just put us in a box, put us in the ground, or they burn, or they, they, they cremate us, we have the ashes, put them in the ground, and it's done. That's the best case scenario for a non-believer. That it's just over. The reality is, all human beings are eternal beings. Our spirit is going to live forever. The only question is, Where? Our destination. For those that know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we know the destination. We no longer need to fear death. Death is simply part of the path that we are walking out till the day we walk into heaven. It's that doorway, it's a portal, if you would, from this earthly life, from the perishable to the imperishable, from the mortal into immortality. Nothing to be feared in the life of a believer. Oh, we, we, we struggle with death. We, we grieve the loss of loved ones. That is normal. But the reality is that loved one that has went through the, death of, the door of death is not grieving. They are rejoicing. They are standing before the throne of God worshiping Him. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, they are there. But we're not. And obviously, grief and some pain, emotional pain, it's normal. 
That's normal. It's part about being human, being created by God with emotions. It's normal. Oh, but for a non-believer, for a non-believer, the moment that they pass from this life, they also pass into immortality. They don't just lay in the ground. They pass into immortality forever and ever to be separated from the presence of God, separated from anything good, experiencing the most intense evil, darkness, pain and agony and suffering that we can imagine then put about an exponent of who knows what on it because we can't get it forever. So when we look at the, re- the resurrection of Jesus, it's like you and I having a guarantee in our hand that the gospel is true. That the gospel is true. That Jesus died, was buried, and He was raised from the dead on the third day as proof and evidence of the first fruit, meaning if He was raised, we will be raised. Because He says we will. If the gospel is true, if the gospel is true, and are we faithful to the gospel? I mean, where did I come up with this title, Motivated by the Resurrection? The verse I started looking at and studying was the last verse in this chapter. And that verse is verse 58, and it says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Therefore, therefore what? What's the therefore mean? Therefore, because of all the truth that Paul has just laid out about the resurrection, about the mystery of you and I becoming immortal, imperishable, from mortal and perishable, about us, us being transformed, changed completely with the certain promise of sending eternity in heaven with Him. That there is not an end at death, it's a new beginning. It's a new beginning for us as Christians. Why should that motivate us? Because we have this certain hope of the gospel that it's all true. And if it's all true, that does mean that those that don't know Jesus are not going to spend eternity where we are. And if we have the heart of Jesus for the lost, we will do whatever it takes with love to lead them to the knowledge of the truth that God may grant them repentance. And that they might accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And once you start doing this, it's going to be frustrating. If you keep score, it's going to look like you're never winning. So many people are still going to reject the gospel message when you share it with them. You could easily get discouraged. I mean, most of us have heard things like, gee, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, duh, you're an idiot to expect different results. If you want to stop your head from hurting, quit banging it against the wall. But with the gospel message, our job is to just keep sharing it, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to do whatever it is He's going to do in the life of that person. Well, what's the point? Why should I keep sharing I look at this scripture and I look at the resurrection and all that it means to us. And I want to look at that verse. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, therefore, because of all these amazing truths 
Therefore, you need to stand firm in your faith. You need to believe and trust in the gospel. That, that we have a glorious hope. Therefore, what are we supposed to do? Therefore what? He says, stay steadfast. Stay steadfast. What's it mean to stay steadfast? It means that we are going to stay strong. We are going to stay firm. We are going to stay confident in our faith. If I share the gospel with 100 people and they all say no, 101 is going to be the lie. Stay firm. What about my faith? Does it really work? We can start questioning what we believe. We can start questioning, am I believing a lie? Is there no power in the gospel? We can start listening to foolish philosophies of man. We can be convinced by an atheist or an agnostic that their thinking is better than ours. He says, no, stand firm. Stand strong. You have the evidence and the proof of the resurrection. Be steadfast. Don't let anything seduce you from faith in the gospel. And then as if to just drive it home one more time, he goes, be steadfast, and then he says, unmovable. And basically it means the same thing, but only with more force. In other words, be steadfast, don't move. You are on the firm foundation of the gospel message. Don't move. Stay right there, no matter what happens. And then he says, why do this? It tells you, abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, Paul and all the other writers of the Scripture do not tell us to rest in our salvation in a physical sense. We rest in it because we have a peace and a hope. But we are not just to, there, I'm saved, I'm going to sit down and wait to walk through the portal of death into the experience of heaven. No. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We are called to be doing the work of the Lord. He is telling us, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always doing the will of God, always out there promoting the glory of God, always out there advancing the kingdom. That's what we're supposed to be doing because we have proof that the resurrection is real. The resurrection happened. And we too are going to be raised one day. So we're to just do everything we can. And it's not just do it, but be diligent about doing it. Stay focused. Work hard at it. Excel in it. The work of the Lord, all that He requires. Boy, what does He require? Remember, He doesn't require anything for our salvation except faith in Jesus Christ. But what does he require? He says, go and make disciples. Go and bring glory and honor to me. Go and cast out demons. Go and lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed. He he tells us all this. Go and do it. Why? To bring glory to God, to advance the kingdom. For as much as you know, I think this scripture reads knowing, which is a better translation. Knowing. We know. Do this, abound in the work, knowing. We understand, we have a confidence, we have a faith that your labor is not in vain. You know, when we, when we don't understand the end result of something, it's hard to stay focused and keep doing the hard work, isn't it? I just hang in there, something good will happen. I don't like those words when I'm working hard. Just keep plowing. Ah, I'm tired of plowing. He says, We are to keep doing the work of the Lord, abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know something. And what we know is is that 
we're not laboring in vain. You know what? Even if we don't see any results of our work for the Lord here on earth, we're going to receive rewards in heaven. We're not only going to get to heaven, we're going to be rewarded when we get into heaven. So whatever we do is not in vain, ever. None of it. And we have this hope. It's all based on the resurrection. You know, it seems like it seems like all I've been focusing on, or one of the primary things I've been focusing on the last few weeks is just all the bad, ugly news in the world. Everywhere you look, evil seems to be winning. And we talked about this last week. And this is an example of, of how we can be swayed in our faith and our confidence and laboring for the Lord. If we sit and look at the Lord, we could easily say, what in the world can I do to change any of that? Or we could even say, what in the world can our little Victory Christian Church out in the middle of nowhere do to change any of that? And as I mentioned last week, we can do a lot. None of our labor is in vain. God will use it. We need to be standing on the gospel and sharing the gospel. We have this hope of the resurrection, to, to proof of the resurrection to motivate us. We know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Death has been defeated. The grave, no sting. It's over with. The victory has been won. But let's advance the kingdom. Let's take all the ground that we can possibly take before Jesus returns. I mean, I've said this, and I'm sure a lot of you have said it, oh, I wish he'd come back today. Really? Anybody you love lost? Anybody you love don't know the Lord? Do you believe there's a hell? Do you really want him to come back today? Or have you got work to do until he does come back? We need to get that mindset in us that we need to labor for the kingdom to advance. He is coming back, and it doesn't sound like we're going to get any warning other than a trumpet call. So we're to work diligently up to the moment we hear the trumpet call. Your labor won't be in vain. Who knows who that last person is that you get to be part of leading to the Lord before the trumpet blasts. We need to be advancing the kingdom, standing firm in our faith, knowing that God is faithful to his word. Let's close in prayer. Lord, it is, it's so good to know and believe and trust that our salvation is assured because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and by the grace that you've extended to us to receive by faith that gift. And God, that your Holy Spirit, you live in us by your Holy Spirit. There is a power that spoke all that exists into being and he lives inside of me and each one of your children. And God, that we have certain hope of the victory that was accomplished through the cross and through Christ and through his death, burial, and resurrection. God, I pray that you will bring people across the paths of each one of us this next week and that, that there is an opportunity to share the gospel, that there is an opportunity we might express the reason for our hope in spite of all that's going on around us, that there is a reason for the peace that we can walk in even when circumstances surrounding us are turmoil. God, that we can have a joy 
in spite of things that are happening that would steal joy in the natural. God, I thank you and praise you that we are never alone. You've promised never to abandon us or forsake us. Lord, I thank you that we as your children have these promises. And Lord, I pray right now that if there would be any of us in this room that don't know you as our personal Lord and Savior, if there would be any of us here who have not made that choice to surrender our lives and say, Lord, I've messed it up, I'm giving it to you. I accept the sacrifice of Jesus for my sin. I will live my life for your glory as best I can by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that's never done that, today's the day they do that. That death would have no power in anyone's life here. That we would see it as that final door into your very presence. 